Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Jimmy. I'm one of the ministers here at All Saints, and it's so good to have you with us here this morning as we come in to reflect and remember the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, it's so good to see so many guests here this morning as well as we come together and worship uh, our crucified Savior. Over the last couple of weeks, as a church, we've been going through a series called On the Road with Jesus. We've been looking at Jesus' journey from Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem to this moment where which we are gathered here for today. And so, so to speak, we've come to the end of the road. And the end of the road has been filled with Jesus being scorned, being beaten, mocked, trialed, and now we are seeing him hung on a cross, killed, and then buried. Not quite the ending I imagine his followers would have expected when they started this journey with Jesus on the road in Galilee. However, Jesus, as we've been reading this morning, doesn't look surprised. He doesn't seem to be in despair or shocked at what he is facing right now. In fact, his language, his posture is one of strong confidence, of someone who is in control of what is going on. And we know that to be true. Ever since Luke chapter 9, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, going there, going to the cross. That was his goal. And in Luke 13, we read that he said that, I must press on. I must keep going. I know people want to kill me, but I must keep going because this is why I've come. I will go to Jerusalem because God's chosen one, me, can't die outside of Jerusalem. So he's come to this moment hanging on the cross. It's hard for us to imagine that this is where he wants to be, but this is where he wants to be, and this is where he needs to be, because he's come for a particular purpose, to save us from our sin, to save us from our separation from our Creator in God. Now Luke presents the narrative of the crucifixion, looking at the various onlookers and, and how they respond to Jesus on the cross. And as we come this morning to reflect on what Jesus' death for us, we are given a question. How will we respond to Jesus' death on the cross? What do we see? And so I want to reflect on three responses this morning from those around the cross and what they say to us about how we should respond to Jesus. The first one is the group that outright, Jesus, outright rejects Jesus, the mockers. These people, these are the rulers and the Pharisees, the king and the people, the governors, who reject and hurl insults at Jesus, mocking his identity as a king. This is the soldiers as well who are there mocking Jesus, the criminal next to him who also blasphemes him. All these people, they see Jesus, and to them, the cross justifies everything the Pharisees and others have said about him, that he is a fraud, that he is not what he said he was. For the rulers and for the Pharisees, if Jesus were truly God's chosen one, if Jesus were truly the king that God was going to send to save the world, then why is he on the cross? Why is God's chosen one dying? Surely that would not be the case. Surely the cross just simply proves that he is not God's chosen one. For the soldiers, they're looking at this and going, this is ridiculous. How could a king end up dying the most shameful and worst of deaths, only reserved for the worst of criminals? They're looking and thinking, going, this is insane. If he were truly a king, you might be given a much more honorable execution or you might want to die on the battlefield. But to be hung up on a cross, 
killed by suffocating, naked for hours. That was the most shameful way to go. And most people wouldn't let kings die in that manner. And for the criminal next to Jesus, he questions his kingship entirely. He's looking at him going, if you are really a king, then why are you up here next to me? <laughs> I am a worst of criminals, but here you are next to me. If you were truly a king, you would have power and you could save yourself. And if you do, by the way, please save me as well. All these people, they have such a particular view of what a king is like. A king has power, a king has authority. And to them, the only evidence that will suffice to say that he is truly who he says he is as king is if he saves himself. That is the refrain we keep hearing from these three groups. Save yourself. If you, truly, if you are who you truly say you are, save yourself. Because in their mind, that's what a king would do. Surely, if you are God's chosen one, God would give you strength and power for you to come down from the cross. Or if you pray to God, he would send angels to come down and save you from the cross. Surely, if you had authority and power as a king, you could command the soldiers around you to let you down from the cross. But because Jesus doesn't do that, their question to Jesus, save yourself, is just a, a mere taunt and a mockery to him making him realize that you don't have that power. You are not who you say you are. And perhaps this morning there are some of you here who you kind of agree with this mockery. You kind of think, well, why could Jesus claim to be king if he could not save himself? How could he claim to have such power and authority if he is now hanging on a cross, dying the most shameful of deaths? How could he say these things about himself? In our world today, leaders and people in power, they don't, have, they don't end up in this kind of situation where they are dying in the most shameful of deaths. And if that's you this morning, then we need to look again at what actually happens in this moment and how Jesus' power is revealed on the cross. You see, as we saw later on, the moment Jesus dies, or just before he dies, crazy things start to happen. Darkness covers the whole land from 12 noon till 3 p.m. Now, I don't know, I remember the last time that ever happened. I'm not sure if that's ever happened in my lifetime or in your lifetime, so to speak. So this is not just a coincidence. This is something crazy going on here. And not just that. Darkness is covering the whole land. And the moment before Jesus dies, according to Luke, the temple curtain rips from top to bottom. This curtain was, was within the temple and it would stop you from getting to what's called the most holy place. This was like the hot spot of where God was. If you wanted to enjoy God's presence in fullness, then that's where you wanted to be. But the problem was, no one was good enough. No one was perfect to enjoy that presence with God. And so there's a big, big curtain, thick curtain blocking you from enjoying God's presence. And in the moment of Jesus' death, that curtain gets ripped from top to bottom, as if to say someone from above has come and destroyed that barrier between man and God because of our sin and wrongdoing. And then he dies. Jesus' death may look powerless, it may look weak to us, but in reality, what he achieves is restoring our relationship with God, which we had broken in the first place. 
We were trapped by our sin and our shame, all the things we had done wrong in our life against each other and those we love or those we don't love. All these things have stopped us to enjoy a relationship with God. Jesus' death took on that punishment himself and made us right with him so that we can enjoy that relationship with God. And that's symbolized from the curtain tearing down, inviting everyone now to enjoy a relationship with God because Jesus Christ has took on that punishment himself. Not only that, his death took on the power of sin itself and defeated it there on the cross. The cross to the mockers looks weak because Jesus is dying and dying looks weak. But what Jesus achieves on the cross is nothing more than our eternal salvation for all who trust in him. He redefines what a king looks like. In the eyes of the world, in the eyes of these rulers and mockers, a king is someone who goes into the battle, who conquers with the sword, who does violence to others to overcome. But Jesus is a king who allows violence to be done to himself. He doesn't send out soldiers to fight in his stead. He doesn't fight in his own self-interest. Rather, he gives his life willingly to save those he loves, his people. And the irony is of this call to say, save yourself if you really are the king, is that it's precisely because he is the king of heaven, the king of this world, that he doesn't go and save himself so that he can save us and he can save those who are mocking him. Jesus responds to the mockers by saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Even in the midst of being scorned and mocked and taunted, he has a compassionate plea to his heavenly Father to say, forgive them, they don't know what they are doing. And for those of you here this morning, if you look at Jesus' death and think this is ridiculous, this whole idea of God dying is stupid, he can't be really king, well God's response to you, Jesus' response to you this morning is, Father forgive them. He is compassionate and kind and wants you to see that what he's doing on the cross is for you. That's the first group, the mockers. The second group is the sympathizers. As Jesus is heading to the place where he'd be killed, a massive crowd is following him. And whilst this crowd, within this crowd is a group of women. These women are the women of Jerusalem. They're not the same women who have come with Jesus from Galilee. These women would have lived in Jerusalem. They wouldn't have been Jesus' followers as such, but they would have heard of Jesus, all he did and taught. They would have seen how much he respected women, particularly as well. And so they probably admired Jesus but they weren't his followers. They're mourning and lamenting because they understand the gravity and the weight of what is happening. Whilst the mockers are laughing it off and going, it was ridiculous that he would call himself king, these women recognize that this man is about to die. Not just any kind of death, but a shameful and painful death. They are mourning and lamenting for him. They're not followers of Jesus. But their opposition to Jesus is not one of hardness. It's of one of gentleness. They're probably like the Roman centurion who said after when Jesus had died, surely this man was a righteous man. Surely he was innocent. 
These women recognize perhaps that Jesus is innocent and they're lamenting the fact that he is now going to die as an innocent man. And there are many people, perhaps yourself, in our culture today who are sympathetic towards Jesus. We have nothing against Jesus. We think, we think he's a good person, has good morals that we want to teach our children to. We might see him as someone who challenged the status quo and got killed for it. And so therefore we think, surely this man is an innocent man. Yes, we can sympathize with him in this moment. Now what's interesting though is that Jesus responds to the sympathizers not the way that we would normally do. He says this, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Jesus, in a really tender and loving moment, warns these women. He says, Your sympathy is not what I need. I need you to realize the judgment that you and the nation of Israel and all people are under for killing me, for killing and crucifying the Son of God. If they had recognized what they were doing, they'd be mourning for themselves and how bad it would be for them at judgment. The pain and judgment would be so great that they would rather end their own life than face judgment from God, from Jesus Christ when he returns. They used to consider having children a blessing, but in that day it would be rather be better for you not to have children because they would also face that same terrible moment. And then Jesus closes with this proverbial warning. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? In other words, if I am suffering in this way whilst being innocent and not deserving to die, what do you think is going to happen to you who are guilty and sinful, killing God's son? All people are complicit in this moment. What do you think is going to happen to us? It's a pretty bleak picture, if we're honest, isn't it? Pretty hard to kind of swallow that. And it's not normally how you respond to someone showing you sympathy. But we need to be Honestly, we need to realize here, Jesus is not being spiteful. He's not going, I'm going to get my revenge on you. You just wait and see. I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to come back and I'm going to judge you all. He's not doing that. He's being compassionate and loving. Remember, he recognizes that people in this moment don't know what they are doing. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. And so he is warning them. What he is saying is that your sympathy won't be enough. What I require from you is repentance. If all you have for me is sympathy, and that's fine, that's good. You recognize I'm an innocent man. But if that's all you have for me, you might as well save it for yourself. If you're not going to repent of your sin and follow me, you might as well save your sympathy for yourself. That's what he's saying in this moment. So the question is, is what does repentance look like? What does it mean to repent of our sin? And that's where we come to the third group, or should I say the third person. This is where we'll close. In verse 32, we read that there are two criminals being crucified next to Jesus. One of them we've already heard has been mocking Jesus, saying, save yourself and me just in case you can, because I want to be saved, I don't want to die. But then the other criminal kind of comes back and says, don't you fear God? 
He rebukes him. And it's interesting, his rebuke kind of reveals the problem of the other two responses to Jesus. He says, don't you fear God since you are under the same judgment? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. In that moment, he recognizes his own sin. He recognizes he has not lived up to the standard that God has set. He has failed to do that. He is a sinner. In that moment, he is repenting, acknowledging his sin, acknowledging he has done wrong. And so then he turns to Jesus. And instead of sympathizing and mourning for him, saying, oh, too bad that you're you're also on the cross here, he says to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Even though Jesus is being mocked and scorned, he's been beaten, trialed, and now executed on the cross, the criminal can somehow still see Jesus of who he really is. He can see it. This is, this, the appearances are deceiving, that what he's doing here is something way more than, than it meets the eye. And his request is a confession of faith and trust in Jesus. Jesus is the one who has the power to save us from sin. He's probably seen the darkness above him. People are probably crying out, going, did you see the temple curtain has been ripped? He's probably thinking, this Jesus is no ordinary man, and this death is no ordinary death, something special about him, and I need to put my faith and trust in him to save me from my sin. And as we read, Jesus responds positively and says, today you will be with me in paradise. The criminal provides for us a pattern of how we should respond to Jesus. Repentance and faith. Repentance, acknowledging that we don't live up to our own standard, let alone God's standard, that we hurt people, we lie and we cheat. We do wrong to others, even if we don't mean it sometimes. We're not perfect. And so we need to acknowledge to our God that he is perfect and we have done wrong. We need to repent of our sin. And then we need to have faith that Jesus Christ will save us. This faith is not just simply an intellectual trust that Jesus died and rose again, that Jesus is real. This is a faith that says, I depend upon you. I can't make it myself. I can't save myself. I depend on you, Jesus. I remember me when you come into your kingdom because I know you're the king. I know you're one in authority and power and I know that only you can save me as the king. So the question this morning is, as we reflect together on this narrative of the crucifixion of Jesus, is how will you respond? How will you respond? Jesus is either who he says he is or he's a lunatic and a liar and deserves all the mockery that the mockers are giving him. Sympathy is a middle ground, but as we saw, it's not enough. Jesus requires that we repent and put our faith in him to save us. So I leave you this morning. How will you respond to the death of Jesus, who is not only the king of the Jews, but the king of our world? Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much that we have the freedom to gather here this morning to reflect on what you've done for us in Jesus Christ, in his death. We thank you so much that he went to the cross to pay for our sin, 
to take on its punishment for us so that we might have hope and forgiveness from you. We thank you that right now we already stand in your mercy and your grace by the fact that we can gather here, by the fact that we can be in your presence. And we thank you for your heart, Lord, that even though we might be hard-hearted, you still desire to love and forgive us. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit now will be touching each one of us, opening up our ears and hearts and minds to see your beauty and your love for us in Jesus Christ who died to save us from our sins. Amen.